Tim, thank you, orchestra. But half the church is up here tonight playing the instruments. Amos chapter 3, please. Amos. Chapter 3. Amos chapter 3, we're going to read just the first three verses of Amos chapter 3. Hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O Israel, uh, O children of Israel. Against the whole family which I brought up from the land of Egypt, saying, You only have I known of all the families of the earth, therefore I will punish you for all your iniquities. You two walk together, except they be agreed. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this night for your word. We thank you, Father God, that we can come together and read your word. Pray that, Lord, you'd help us to understand it now as we study together. As we embark, Father God, upon Amos chapter 3 and following, we pray that you'd give us wisdom and understanding and guidance, Father God, through your word. Help me tonight, Father, I pray, to have your leading. Help me, Father, to have your uh, words, and may I speak only that which you'd have me speak tonight. And may our hearts be blessed by your word, and may we leave tonight, having known we've been in your presence be able to thank you, Father God, for speaking to us through your word. Bless us now, we pray, as we study your word together, and we'll be sure to give you all the praise and all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, just to give a bit of background again about the book of Amos, uh, it's been a while since we've been here. Amos was an unqualified but willing prophet. He was a farmer who had no formal training, uh, but God called him to serve as a prophet because of his willingness to serve and his willingness to obey God, his willingness to do the work of the Lord. And so God calls upon him while he's going about his daily business to be a prophet. And God's message, for the most part, was directed against Israel or against the ten northern kingdoms, the northern tribes of Israel. As you know, the kingdom was split into two, into Judah in the south and Israel in the north. Judah in the south, made up of two uh, of the tribes of Israel, uh, Israel in the north, the ten tribes of Israel, and the northern kingdom was the most wicked of the two, having no godly kings whatsoever. The southern kingdom having a mixture of godly and ungodly kings. And uh, in 722 BC, God had the Assyrians come and destroy the northern kingdom. And in 605 BC, Nebuchadnezzar came and took away captive the southern kingdom over three periods of captivity, five, uh, 606 or 605 BC, uh, 597 and 583 were the deportations. And so this is the nation of Israel at this time. There, there still is the two kingdoms, the northern kingdom, the southern kingdom. And Amos, for the most part, is to this northern kingdom, the ten tribes, who are about to be judged by God. In chapter 3 and chapter 4 and chapter 5, in verse 1 of each of these chapters, we start out with these words. Hear this word in chapter 3. Chapter 4, hear this word. And in chapter 5, hear this word. All these chapters begin with this phrase, 
And in each of these chapters, God is going to warn the nation of Israel of the consequence of their sin. He's going to warn them about the fact that he's about to act against them. That God is about to pour out his judgment upon the nation of Israel as he has done upon the heathen nations, the Gentile nations, as he has done upon Judah, he's going to pour it out now upon Israel. And here in Amos chapter 3, Amos lists for us some areas in which Israel sinned against God and explains now to them why it is that they deserve to be judged. And he makes it clear that if we are to walk with God, we must agree with God. Can two walk together except they be agreed, he says in verse 3. And if we're going to walk with God, we must agree with God. And over the next two weeks, we want to consider two truths out of just the first verse of this chapter. We want to consider tonight Israel's sin against privilege in verses 1 and 2. And the next week, Israel's sin against God's special calling or sin against position in verse 2 and down to verse 8. Today, we want to have a look at the fact that Israel sinned against privilege. Now, these two messages, this week and next week, really form a kind of an introduction to the, uh, the rest of the book, if you like. So I'm going to take a bit of time uh, talking about this and talking about uh, what's going on here, that we might build a foundation for the rest of the story. So we are only going to cover basically one and a half verses tonight, and then next week we're going to pick up where we leave off tonight and uh, do just a few verses before uh, the next time we come together in the book of Amos, we'll launch in to the, the chapter 3 proper. But I want us to set some foundation, lay the, the groundwork to understand why it is that God's going to judge them. And there are two main reasons why God's going to judge the nation of Israel. As I said, it's because they'd sinned against privilege and because they'd sinned against position. And tonight we want to consider this matter, the fact that they'd sinned against privilege. And there are two reasons why they were privileged. The first is because God had delivered them from bondage. Look in verse 1. Hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O children of Israel, against the whole family which I brought up from the land of Egypt. God had brought them out of the land of Egypt. You know, the nation of Israel had failed to walk in agreement with God. Even though God had given them every opportunity to follow him, even though God had given them every opportunity to live for him, even though God had given them everything they needed to be the nation that God wanted to be, Israel had failed to live up to that privileged position. As his children, God had indeed often reminded them of his mercy. And this is nowhere better illustrated than in the deliverance of the nation of Israel out of bondage in Egypt. And one of the great examples of God's mercy and grace to a people is the deliverance of Israel from bondage. And so God uses that as the key point here in chapter 3. He says uh, that I've spoken against you, this family of Israel, because uh, uh, of what you've done. I brought you out of Egypt, but you've failed me. You know, they lifted up their voice for mercy and deliverance. And God had answered their prayers. Go back to Exodus chapter 2, please. Exodus chapter 2. Verse 
And verse 23. And it came to pass in process of time that the king of Egypt died. And the children of Israel sighed by reason of the bondage. And they cried, and their cry came up unto God by reason of their bondage. And God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham and Isaac and with Jacob. And God looked upon his children, upon the children of Israel, and God had respect unto them. And you know the story. God then raised up Moses, and Moses then delivers Israel out of captivity. Leads them through the Red Sea, leads them through the wilderness, leads them through the Jordan into the promised land. And yet how quickly the nation forgot their awful condition in Egypt. You know, they forgot the forced labor. They forgot the killings. They forgot the cruelty. They forgot the terrible situation they found themselves in in Egypt. They forgot why it was they cried out to God for deliverance. It didn't take them long. They, they got to the verge of the Red Sea and they complained about how that it would have been better for them to die in Egypt than die in the wilderness. God leads them through the Red Sea and they complain about how the, the God had brought them into the wilderness that they might die because they have no water, so God gives them water. Then they go a little bit further and they complain and say that God's going to kill them. Uh, better that you'd kill us in Egypt than let us die out here of starvation. So God gives them the manna. Then they complain about the manna. Then they complain. Then they complain. Then they complain. And it just goes on and on and on. The nation of Israel that was experienced the mercy and grace of Almighty God and the deliverance from bondage was the prime example of that. And yet how quickly they forgot their God. You know, it says in Numbers chapter 11, verse 5, we remember the fish which we did eat in Egypt freely, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, and the onions, and the garlic. They remember the good things of Egypt. What they didn't remember was the bad things. They didn't remember the hardship. They didn't remember the toil. They didn't remember the whips on the backs as they had to make those bricks. They didn't remember uh, what it was they were in. They forgot they were in bondage. And all they wanted was the good things of Egypt. They'd forgotten God's deliverance. And because they did, they turned their back upon God and all that he'd done for them. And so now in verse 1 we read, O children of Israel against the whole family which I brought up from the land of Egypt, I have spoken this word against you, he says. I'm about to judge you because you have failed to live up to that great deliverance that I had done for them. And this was a shameful and sinful situation. In fact, Israel's rejection and disregard of God is the more inexcusable in the light of their great deliverance. The, the state they find themselves in now, as Amos writes this book, as they find themselves in this condition, in this rebellious state, it's even more excusable in the light of all that God's done for them. I mean, if God had done nothing for them, their rebellion would have been inexcusable. Because God is a God of love and God's a God of mercy. But after all that God has done for them, the fact that they do not obey Him, they don't walk in agreement with Him, is all the more inexcusable. Because they fail to live in accordance with God's will. Since God delivered them, when they sinned and they turned their back upon God, they sinned against great privilege. You know, beloved, we've experienced a great deliverance. You and I were in bondage to sin. 
You and I were shackled in the chains of sin and death. You and I were hell-bound sinners. You and I were lost, and you and I were without hope. We were in bondage. We were in enmity with God. You and I were slaves in the slave market of sin, but God delivered us by his grace, by his mercy, by his love. He delivered you and I from the bondage of sin and set us free. He delivered us from sin and death and hell. Isn't it true that we too are in danger of and indeed sometimes guilty of forgetting all that God has done for us? Before we sit in judgment of Israel and say how wicked of them that they would forget all that God's done for them, aren't we the same at times? Don't we take for granted the salvation that's ours in Christ Jesus? Don't we take for granted the wonderful privileged position we have? Don't we often sin against privilege just like they did? You know, you and I as sinners, we're lost and destitute. We're on our way to hell and God rescued you and I, and all we had to do to be rescued was believe on the Lord's Christ, and we were saved. God did it all. Jesus paid it all. All to him we owe. He paid it all. And yet so often we're no better than Israel. We sin against privilege because we forget all that God's done for us, and when we do, we're no better than Israel. Go with me, would you, would the second Peter? Chapter 1, 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1. And I want to read the first nine verses of 2 Peter chapter 1. And really just hone in on verse 9 is where we want to end up. But I want to read the rest leading up to this. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to them that have obtained like precious faith, with us through the righteousness of God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Grace of peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of, the Lord, and of Jesus our Lord. According as his divine power hath given us unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness, through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these ye may, might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. And beside this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, to virtue, knowledge, to knowledge, temperance, and to temperance, patience, to patience, godliness, and to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, charity. For if these things be in you and abound, they make you that ye shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now look in verse 9. But he that lacketh these things is blind, and cannot see afar off, and hath forgotten that he was purged from all sins. You know, isn't it true that so often we forget what it was that we were saved from? We forget that you and I are the recipients of, of the great gift of God that says, it says in verse 1, that to them that obtain like precious faith through the righteousness of God and of our Savior Jesus Christ, Verse 3, according to his divine power, has given to us all things that pertain unto life and godliness. Verse 4, whereby he's given unto us exceeding great and precious promises that we might be partakers of the divine nature and have escaped the corruption that is in the world through lusts. But how often are we, is verse 9 true of us, that we've forgotten that we were purged 
from our old sins. And I wonder how often we're guilty of sinning against privilege just like the nation of Israel. That you and I forget what God has done for us. And when you and I fail to put God first, when you and I fail to acknowledge all that God's done for us, then we too, like Israel, sin against privilege. We've been bought with a price. Therefore, we're to glorify God in our body and our spirits, which are his. Because we're bought with a price, as 1 Corinthians, Corinthians chapter 6, verse 20 tells us. What, no, you're not, that you're bought with a price. We should live up to our privileged position. We're the sons of God. You know, we've been seeing that in the book of Ephesians, particularly in Ephesians chapter 5, whereby we're told to walk worthy of our calling, wherewith we're called, and that we're to be imitators of God, and we're children of light. You and I are to live up to our privileged position. Let's not be guilty of, like Israel, forgetting what God has delivered us from and therefore simply going through life, living our lives as we please, in, in total neglect and ignorance of what God has done for us. But let's remind ourselves continually of the wonderful deliverance from bondage that I might live up to our privileged position to the glory of God and not be guilty of sinning against privilege like Israel. And they sinned against privilege because they forgot that they'd been delivered from bondage. But also, you know, with this, not only do, does the Lord tell them about the fact that they, the first reason why they're privileged is because they live in bondage, but they were privileged because the nation had a special relationship with God. Look in verse 2 at the beginning. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. It says, Hear the word of the Lord that has spoken against you, O children of Israel, against the whole family. And this is why I've spoken against you. I brought you up of the land of Egypt, and you, have, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. You have a special relationship with God, Israel. Now, we're going to pick this theme up again next week, but uh, we, we want to touch on it today, and then we want to do a little bit more next week. But they, this, this next week, we're going to look at the fact that they sinned against position next week. But in this idea of privilege, this nation was privileged in their deliverance and they were privileged in their relationship with God, not only because the nation had been delivered from bondage, but because God had chosen them of all the peoples of the world, of all the nations of the world, God had chosen them to be his people. He chosen them to have a special relationship with them. You only have I known of all the families of earth, of all the families of the earth, this nation. God had chosen to have a special relationship with. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Yet after all of that, both the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom sinned against God. Because notice what in verse 2 it says, you only, oh, verse 1, sorry. It says, O children of Israel, against the whole family which I brought up. The whole family there, that phrase, the whole family, he's speaking about the king and the northern kingdom. He said, I have a word against the whole family, not just against the ten tribes of the north, but I have a word against the whole family of Israel, against all twelve tribes of Israel, 
because that whole family was delivered from bondage. That whole family has a special relationship with God. And the whole family had sinned against God. They deserted him and they had run off as unfaithful wives. The Lord speaks about that clearly in the book of Hosea and mentions it with uh, Hosea and his wife Gomer and illustrates how that the nation of Israel were no better than an unfaithful wife to God, not walked with him. They had sinned against privilege. And so God says to them in verse 2, you only have I known of all the families of the earth, therefore I will punish you from all for all your iniquities. Two walk together, except they be agreed. They'd walked away from God. They'd not walked in agreement with God. And to maintain their relationship with the Lord, they were to keep his statutes, they were to keep his commandments. God had clearly spelled out for the nation of Israel when when he delivered them from Egypt and he was about to deliver them into the promised land, at the end of their wilderness wanderings, God clearly spelled out for them what was required of them as his special people. Go back with me, if you would, to Deuteronomy, please. Deuteronomy chapter 4. It's not as though the nation of Israel did not know what God expected of them. So as the nation of Israel was in the blind, it was blind when it comes to knowing God's expectation upon their lives. In Deuteronomy, as Moses is getting ready to uh, see the children of Israel go into the Promised Land, he's given to them his final instructions. And in Deuteronomy chapter four, verse forty, we read this: "Thou shalt keep therefore his statutes." And his commandments, which I command thee this day, that it may be that it may go well with thee, and with thy children after thee, and that thou mayest prolong thy days upon the earth, which the Lord thy God giveth thee. Here is what God said to them as they enter in the promised land, I'm telling you to keep my statutes and to keep my commandments. So that it may that you may be you may prolong your days upon earth, which the Lord thy God thee forever. And if you were to read on from chapter four through chapter five and through chapter six, you'd find that God repeats this over and over again. Look at chapter five and verse one. And Moses called all Israel and said unto them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and the judgments which I speak in your ears this day, that you may learn them and keep them and do them. And then he goes on in chapter 5 and he talks about that over and over again. In chapter 6, he tells them to teach it to their children. In verse six, chapter 6, verse 1, Now these are the commandments, the statutes, the judgments, which the Lord your God commanded to teach you, that you might do them in the land whither you go to possess it, that thou mayest fear the Lord thy God, to keep all his statutes and his commandments, which I command thee, thou and thy son and thy son's sons, all the days of thy life, and that thy days may be prolonged. It's not as though the nation of Israel were totally ignorant of God's expectation upon them. The whole family of Israel, the whole nation of Israel knew God's expectation. God had laid it down for them in the law. And now as Moses prepares to 
have the children of Israel led into the promised land. He lays it out for them, chapter after chapter after chapter, line by line, over and over again. He spells it out to them what it is that's expected of them. They were to keep his statutes. They were to keep his judgments. They were to keep his commandments. And they were to teach them to their children. And they were to them to their children. That their days may be prolonged on the earth. If they didn't want to go into captivity, if they didn't want to be destroyed, then you live up to your privileged position. Keep my commandments. You see, Israel was to be separated from sin. Yet now their sin is about to separate them from their God. God speaks to them in judgment. As he says there in verse 1, hear this word in Amos chapter 3, hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you. O children of Israel, against the whole family. This word that I'm speaking is against you, against the whole family, because of what you've done. He's going to spell out in chapter 3, chapter 4, chapter 5 and following. He's going to spell out just exactly what it is they've done. But he wants them to understand that the judgment that's coming upon them is because they had a privileged position. They've been delivered from bondage. They had a special relation with God and they defiled that by their disobedience to God's commandments, God's judgments, God's law. Now God's about to judge the whole family. He delivered them from bondage. Now they sit after the things of Egypt. He made them his people. They turn their back upon their special relationship with God. Now God had gotten them out of Egypt. But until Egypt had never gotten out of them. They were no longer living physically in the land of Egypt. They were living in the land of promise. But the things of Egypt, those things that so many years before that their, their grandfathers and their great-grandfathers had so long that caused them to spend 40 years wandering in the wilderness were now the very things that they were craving now in the land of promise. They were sinning against their privileged position. They were not walking in agreement with God. The relationship was affected. That's why God asked the question, verse 3, can two walk together except they be agreed? And the answer is no. They were not walking in agreement with God, and therefore the relationship with God was affected. I thought about this. I thought about the fact that we too have a special relationship with God. You and I have been delivered from bondage, but you and I also have been made his children. He's delivered us from sin. He's delivered us from death. He's delivered us from hell. But he's also delivered you and I from the world so that you and I are no longer are we citizens of this earth, but you and I are pilgrims passing through and our citizenship is in heaven. A special relationship with God. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 8 says this, For you were sometimes darkness, but now are ye light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. He's delivered us from the world. But all too often, believers today, isn't it true that we crave so often after the pleasures 
of the world, the pleasures the world offers, rather than being separated from, from, towards God. You know, Christianity in general, you look at it in general today, one of the big problems with Christianity in general is that this Christianity wants to embrace what the world has. They don't want to be separate from the world. They want to be the same as the world. And the struggle that you and I have as believers is that you and I often see what the world has. You and I want what the world offers in many ways, and we crave after that, even though we've been delivered from it. And we're the children of God. Sometimes we're no different than Israel. That's why the Lord has to remind us in verses like 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 17, Wherefore come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. You see, if you and I are to have sweet fellowship with God, we must agree with God about the things of this world. Isn't that what verse 3 says? How can two walk together and accept they, unless they be agreed? Can two walk together and accept they be agreed? If you and I want to have a sweet relationship with the Lord, if you and I want to walk with God, then you and I must agree with God. If we don't agree with God, then we can't walk with God. If you and I want to walk in sweet fellowship with God, then you and I must agree with God about that which God says is right and wrong. You and I must identify sin as sin, and you and I must agree with God that that is sin, and you and I must seek his face and seek to walk in his will, contrary to sin and worldliness and everything that goes with it. In fact, we're told in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 22, that we're to abstain from all the appearance of evil. The word abstain means to hold oneself off or to refrain from evil. We're commanded in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 22, to abstain or refrain from all sin, and more than that, we're to refrain from any association with sin and sinful practices. And this is where Christians so often fail. Because notice what it says in 1 Thessalonians 5.22, it says, abstain from all the appearance of evil. Not just the evil itself, but the very appearance of evil. You see, the nation of Israel wanted the best of both worlds. They wanted to be the Jews. They wanted to be God's people, and they wanted the temple, and they wanted to worship God, and they wanted all the blessings of God, but at the same time, they wanted all the things uh, of the world. They wanted the leeks and the garlics and the cucumbers that came from Egypt. They wanted all the pleasures of Egypt and the pleasures of their world, and God too. God asked the question, can two walk together except they be agreed? If I say this and you want to live here, and I say of that that's wrong, then you cannot have fellowship with me. In order to maintain sweet fellowship with the Lord, we must abstain from all association with evil. That's even the appearance of evil. You see, our relationship with God is dependent upon our agreement with God. If we don't agree with God, then we can't walk with God. Today we see Christians who don't follow 
the command of 1 Thessalonians 5.22, they may not engage in sin, but they don't care about the appearance. Therefore, Amos 3 tells us they cannot walk with God. You know, my, my dad used to have a saying that uh, when, when I was growing up about, you know, whether something, whether they should be involved in something or not. And uh, he used to say, if it's doubtful, it's dirty. In other words, if there's any doubt that what you're doing is right or wrong, then it's probably wrong. And he used to say to me, he used to say, son, you know, it's easier to think that it's wrong and not do it and find out later you can do it than to do it and find out later you shouldn't have done it. If it's doubtful, it's dirty. Just stay away from it. And here we're commanded in 1 Thessalonians 5.22 to abstain from all the appearance of evil. If it's doubtful, God says, then abstain from it. If it's doubtful, stay away from it. If it's doubtful, have nothing to do with it. If you want to walk with God, then abstain from all the appearance of evil. See, the idea is more than staying away from evil itself. Staying away from those things that even look evil. You know, Christianity Today has had a, has, has had a wonderful job of uh, repainting Christianity. You know, we retag it now and we, we put a title Christian something on it and for it's then acceptable. You call it Christian rock and it's okay because it has the word Christian with it. You call it Christian entertainment and it's okay because there's Christian at the front of it. You, you give the name Christian to it and all of a sudden it's legitimate because it's Christian. The thing is, if the thing itself is not legitimate, then giving Christian to it doesn't make it legitimate. If the thing is legitimate, it's legitimate in and of itself, whether it's called Christian or not. If it's something that God accepts, if it's something that's not unacceptable to God, then you and I as believers can do it, whether it's called Christian or not. But just because we tag Christian on that which is unacceptable to God doesn't automatically make it acceptable to God. We need to abstain from all the appearance of evil. You know, Christians want to see how close they can get to evil without engaging in it. God says abstain. In another verse, he tells us to be holy as he is holy. We cannot have an intimate relationship with God unless we agree with God about sin and righteousness. And we agree with God about what is wicked. This was Israel's problem. They didn't agree with God. God said, here are my commandments, my statutes, my judgments, my laws. Here is what I believe is the body of righteousness, Israel. Here is what reflects my character. Here is the first five books of the Old Testament. And this reveals to you the very character and the nature of Almighty God. And these are my commandments, my judgments, my statutes. And you are to live by them. Because if you want to walk with me, you have to walk in accordance with my will. And Israel said, well, we don't like your rules and your standards and your judgments and your statutes. We're going to walk over here. But God, we still want you to accept us. We still want you to bless us. We still want you to be our God. And God said, enough's enough. I can't walk where you're walking. If you want to walk with me, you've got to walk where I'm walking. 
If we want to walk with God, beloved, we have to walk where God's walking. We have to walk in His statutes and His commandments and His judgments. We have to walk in accordance with His will. Now, God would not have fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, nor should we. Ephesians 5.11 says, And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. And that's us. We need to reprove those unfruitful works of darkness and walk away from them. Since God hates all forms of wickedness, and will not associate with it, nor should we. We should abstain from all the appearance of evil. You know, when I was growing up, there were certain things that Christians never do simply because of the appearance was evil. Even though doing it may not have made you evil, it looked evil. It, it was worldly in itself, and then you wouldn't do it. Today, I get surprised at what some believers will do, and think somehow it's okay, even though that thing still appears evil. We've come so far just in my lifetime. And if the Lord tarries, I hate to think where we're going to be with regards to this matter of abstaining from all the appearance of evil because it seems that we have shifted the goalposts. We accept a whole lot more now than we ever used to accept. And what worries me is if we're embracing the appearance of evil and thinking it's not evil, then how much is the Christianity in general embracing that which is evil? You know, it can be still illustrated with, with something simple as rock music. You know, in rock music, it's not just the words and not just the music that is wrong, but rock music's associations are wrong. You know, rock music is associated more, more than not with drugs and sex and rebellion and all the other things that go with rock and roll and rock music. And therefore... We're not to associate with it at the very least because of its associations. That's irrespective of talking about why it's, the music's wrong and why the words are often wrong and why everything about it's wrong. And I'm not saying the music isn't wrong. Rock music is wrong at the very music. But you know, at the very, even, if you want to, even if you want to put that aside because you don't even understand music and you don't understand how it all works and what's wrong certain types of music and why it's sensual and why we should be involved in it. The very fact that its associations are wrong ought to be a reason for you and I to have nothing to do with it. Because that's abstained from all the appearance of evil. As I said, I'm not saying that music, the music itself isn't wrong, but the principle of association makes it wrong. And therefore, to use rock music for Christian worship is totally unacceptable on that grounds alone because of what it's associated with. Since that God would not agree with that, God would not walk there, that, that, is, that is associated with sinfulness, then why would you bring that which is associated with sinfulness and bring it into the church and give it a tag Christian rock and somehow it's now acceptable even though the very thing itself by association is wrong? And you can do that with all sorts of things. It doesn't matter what you're talking about. If you look at anything the, the world has to offer, if that thing in itself is wrong or the associations it has is wrong, then you and I ought not to have anything to do with it because we need to walk where God would walk. 
abstain from all the appearance of evil. Since God hates all wickedness, then we should not associate with that which associates with evil. And that principle should govern all that we do. Israel failed to live up to their special relationship. Israel failed to live up to their privileged position. And as such, they're about to be judged. They failed to walk where they ought to walk. They failed to live where they ought to live. They were about to be judged. If we fail to turn from wickedness, if we fail to live up to our privileged position as born-again believers, then our relationship with God will be hindered. We cannot have an intimate relationship with God unless we agree with God. And next week we're going to see how God develops that very thought. How he talks about the fact they sin against position, this position, the special calling they have in God, how they sin against their position and what that led to. Because can two walk together except they be agreed is the beginning of a series of questions that God asks of the nation they might understand the seriousness of their behavior. You and I cannot have an intimate relationship with God unless we agree with God. If we fail to turn from wickedness, if we fail to turn from the appearance of wickedness, our relationship with God cannot be all it ought to be. You and I need to live up to our privileged position of believers in Christ Jesus. Don't forget what God has done for us. Allow that to move you and I to live for the Lord and serve him. Let's not sin against privilege. Let's live in accordance with the will of God for our lives. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you this night for your word. Thank you for Amos chapter 3. And Lord, we know this is just an introduction to this whole section of the book of Amos. I do pray, Father God, as this week and next week we lay the foundation by way of introduction that, Lord, we might understand why it is that you are so uh, upset with your people Israel and why it is that you're about to judge them and what it is that they have done which is so uh, wicked in your sight. Lord God, we might understand how we ought to walk and how we ought to live as your special people, as we a privilege, Father God, to be delivered from bondage and be called your children. May we, Father God, live for you and honor you. Lord, help us to be what you want us to be. Help us, Father God, to abstain from all the appearance of evil. Help a witness and testimony for you to your glory that you might receive all the praise and all the glory. Lord, help us to live up to our position in Christ you might see Christ in us, the hope of glory. This we ask in Jesus' name.